Just a couple things. First of all, the Henning family, uh, as many families were dealing with some COVID things, we were dealing with some COVID. So thank you for your prayers and encouragement um, for us. We're, we're back and I think pretty much back to 100%. And so, yeah, just about close to there. And if there's, if there's things like, you know, forgetfulness or, you know, stuff like that, now at least I have an excuse. So... We're grateful for that, thankful, thankful for the church, for your prayers, uh, expressions of care. Many of you reached out to us just to say, hey, can we help you out in different ways? And uh, for those that were, that were doing that uh, to our family and to others as well, we're just very, very thankful for that. Thanks for our church family. I also want to just publicly note uh, and say thank you to our staff. Because obviously there's just disruptions that happen. We not only had to deal with COVID, but then quarantine. And there's certain things that couldn't be done that would normally we, we would have done. And so our, our staff team just continues to do such a wonderful job of showing flexibility, of showing faithfulness, of rooting for each other, helping each other out, and all that kind of stuff. And so I think it'd be appropriate to say thank you to our staff. Just so grateful for them. And I publicly want to say how thankful I am. Uh, for our staff team. Their faithfulness, flexibility, covering all of the needs, uh, really, really good stuff. So here's what we're going to do uh, in the spirit of our Advent series that we're doing called Child of the Promise. We're going to jump right into Romans chapter 5 today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn over there. I'm going to read a few verses um, from Romans chapter 5 to kind of get us oriented around the message today. We're going to unpack this and a handful of other scriptures today. So we're going to jump, jump right in, and then, um, you know, we're going to get our hearts ready for the communion table. That's how we're going to conclude our service today um, with communion and then a little follow-up worship. So uh, that's our plan. Uh, Romans chapter 5, this is Paul's epistle to the Roman church. I'm going to begin reading in verse 6, and I'm going to read verses 6 to 8, and then I'd also like to read 18 and 19 with you, uh, which actually sums up some of the main things that Paul is, is writing about in this very rich chapter Uh, So Romans 5, uh, verse 6 and following says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. I think if, if you were to ask me one of the most important verses of the entire Bible, I would probably say Romans 5.8, maybe one of the top ones. Paul goes to then unpack this and he's talking about the new Adam and the old Adam, and he's talking about sort of the work of sin that was ushered in, but then the work of righteousness that was ushered in by Christ and then he kind of kind of sums it up with these words in verses 18 and 19. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one and the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made sinners righteous. May God add blessing to the reading of his word this morning. So we're going to unpack that here in a few minutes, and uh, I'll kind of introduce formally the the topic for today, the promise that we're looking at. We know who the child is. 
Uh, the series is called The Child of the Promise. We know who the child is. We're celebrating in this Christmas season. It is Jesus Christ. But today and, and through these weeks, we're going to be unpacking, like, what are the promises that are associated with his advent? What are the things that we can actually latch on to even now uh, as a blessing? But let, let me begin with something that happened several years ago. In 2004, um, Amy and I, on a long weekend, we went to visit uh, some friends, actually some people that go to this church, Glenn and Judy Fireball, you may know them. Uh, they've been part of this church for a long time, and they've been friends of ours for a long, long time. And um, we had a long weekend, we were doing campus ministry at the time, and we decided Glenn and Judy were in uh, Boston uh, doing like a visiting scholarship kind of thing up there for several weeks and months, and so we were like, we're going to go to Boston. And we had never been to Boston before. So we thought it would be sort of fun to take this long weekend, and we packed our little Saab 9000 and went up to, to Boston. It was a great trip. How many of you have been to Boston before? Many of you have. I never had. We never had. And so it was kind of a new adventure. We were going to see some things we hadn't seen before, see a city that we weren't that familiar with. There's lots of history and culture and all that kind of stuff there, which is great. But it was in 2004, and some of you are probably thinking, Boston, 2004. What was it that happened of great significance in Boston of 2004? Does anybody have anything coming to mind? If I say Red Sox fans in Boston in 2004, is anybody a Red Sox fan, first of all? Okay, good, good. I'm glad that they're not here. I'm just kidding. Glad that you're here. We're glad that you're here. Someone's like, I'm never raising my hand again. Never this one. Wow. No, we love Red Sox, fan, Red Sox, Red Sox fans. Um, so, so Red Sox fans, what happened in 2004? The, yeah, it was like the reverse of the curse, okay? So if you're a Red Sox fan, you know the curse of the Bambino. I didn't really know what this was, but as we're you know, going up and we're spending time in Boston, everybody was talking about the curse of the Bambino because for 86 years since the Boston Red Sox had traded away Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees, they had never had the big win again. And so 86 years, decades upon decades, lifetimes going by of this curse of the Bambino. And at the time that we went to go visit them, the, the Red Sox had just fallen behind zero games to three. I misspoke in the first service when I was telling this. I said it was, zero, it was one game. It was zero games to three. And I think at the time, at least, no professional team in the history of sports had come down from a deficit of a zero to three in a best of seven series. Okay, so it was dire. And coming into a city that we didn't know, you could feel the palpable angst. People talked about it on the news, and it was in the newspapers, it was on the radio, it was just the people you talked to on the street had this collective sigh of living under the curse for 86 years, the curse of the Bambino. You could feel it. But something happened, and I'm not saying it's because we were there. But I'm not saying it's not, <laughs> that they came back and they won game four, and then they won game five, and then they won game six, and the whole city, this was, this was during the time we were there, the whole city is starting to like change and, and breathe differently and hope differently, and it was like this palpable sense. And for someone who's not a huge baseball fan to begin with and not really a Red Sox fan, it was actually kind of cool to see the excitement that was building because it was like, 
we think the curse might be lifting. We're going to actually reverse the curse. And I kind of wanted that to be true. It seemed like it was sort of an exciting time. Well, it did happen. And uh, the other thing that was of, of note, we, we went and saw some other friends as well. And when we saw the other friends, they were in Quincy, uh, Massachusetts. And they said, you know, this is game. I think this was the last game of the series. They said, why don't we go down, we'll jump on the train and go down to Fenway Park. And I was like, let's do it. So we went down to Fenway Park, and it was electric. I mean, people were so excited because the curse was possibly going to be finally lifted. And people offered us tickets, $1,000. And I said, no, <laughs> I don't care that much, but I'm just going to want to be around here or whatever. So it was cool. And the history was that they did end up winning that series and then went on to win the World Series, and then people were, were pretty excited. So if you were a Red Sox fan in 2004, that was sort of a big, big deal. Um, the promise that we're looking at today, after that long and slightly obnoxious introduction, is this. The curse is broken. You know, the, the, the coming of Christ, the advent of Christ, the child of the promise, the first promise we looked at last week was that the light is dawning, that the, the darkness is not going to last forever, and yet with all of these promises, there's this element of faith because there's a lot of times that our world feels very dark, but the promise of the child, the child of the promise, the promise is that the light has come, the light has dawned, and the darkness is not going to have the final word. The promise that we look at today is that the curse is broken. And I'd like to kind of lean into that in sort of three sort of slices. I, I want to kind of give a, a gospel sort of orientation or context of like, what, what do we mean by that statement. And then I want to look at kind of the scriptural context of like, what, what does that actually mean to us scripturally where we've started today in Romans 5 and we'll build from there. There's some theological grittiness. We're certainly not going to exhaust the theme today. Uh, but then where I'd really love for us to land is just what is the personal implication of that promise, that statement, the curse is broken. And I would suggest to us that it means something much more than... Uh, our favorite sports team, etc. So the first point is just kind of gospel context of this promise. The promise is that the curse is broken. What is the gospel context of this promise? Well, in Romans 5, as we've read already this morning, Paul writes, you see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless... And I think this is more than just preamble. It's more than just fluff. This is an important theological truth that Paul is... is eager to get across to his hearers that the time was God's time. And not just a Galatians 4.4 that in the right time Jesus came, born of a woman, born under the law. That is true as well. But in that space of our powerlessness, that the access into the breaking of the curse of sin is actually an acknowledgement of our inability to do that on our own. And so that's important that we understand that. At the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And that's an important scriptural truth too, gospel kind of orientating, or orient, or orientation for us to say that, that Christ died for the ungodly. And I'm going to unpack that for us a little bit. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So I want to make sure 
uh, that we have a little bit of what I would just kind of call gospel context around this statement. Because while it is incredibly good news, it is a part of the bigger picture of what Scripture is unpacking for us in the gospel. Uh, One of the things that we've preached on a lot of times here, and it's just a great way for us to kind of get our mind around what is the narrative arc of Scripture, what is it saying to us, are these four words, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That when you, when you look at the arc of Scripture and kind of the key moments or chapters to try to understand what is it that Christ has done for us, what is it that Christ is doing in us, and what are we being called to, these four words are actually really, really helpful. They're not unique to us or to me, although I have preached on them at various times. Well, recently, I heard somebody else preaching on them, and I was kind of like, oh, this is great. I preached on this, and this person was unpacking some really good stuff. Jeff Vanderstelt is his name. And one of the things that he noted, when you think about those four words giving us kind of a theological grid with which we understand things like, what does it mean that the curse is broken? That's kind of where we're going. But he made this point that I think is worth noting for us today, that he said, oftentimes in evangelical circles and in the Christian world, we have an overly narrow view of the arc of Scripture. Most of us have a decent understanding of fall. Most of us have a decent understanding of redemption. So that when we tell our story, we usually say something like, I once was lost and now I'm found. You know what I mean? Which is good. I mean, this is good news. I'm not knocking that at all. I'm going to simply argue, as he did, that that's kind of an overly narrow view of the big picture of what God is doing in the gospel. And here's the specific thing that it's missing. When we miss out on the creation and what God has done in making all things good. Now, that creation, we know, goes through a fall. We're going to look at that a little bit more specifically today. But when we miss out on the creative work of God, if our theological grid is lacking, we begin with the brokenness of humanity, the fallenness of humanity, and yet it becomes very easy to slip into a sense of judgmentalism. These broken people out there, when I look at my world, and right now is a prime example, several of the things that we're going to talk about today, just you see it in our world today. You see the accusation, you see the division, you see the frustration of people who are not like me and are obviously wrong, right? And from a Christian perspective, it's true. I mean, there are, there are people that are not like you, meaning that they are not in Christ, but instead of starting with the division of how wrong they are, we actually have this opportunity with a wider theological grid to be able to say, but wait a minute, that person who is spiritually wrong is made in the image of God. And when you start with the creation narrative that, that, that that we are made in the image of God, then your greatest enemy actually still is a person who is a candidate for the restoration and the redemption of God. And it keeps us much better gospel focused instead of just distancing ourselves from people who just don't get it or just aren't right. So when I begin with the brokenness of humanity or the fall, it's easy to slip into that sense of judgmentalism. But Jesus actually loves people who are broken. 
I mean, that, that's, the, that's the crazy turnaround, especially for all of us who have been walking with Jesus for a long time. We figure our lives are pretty cleaned up and we're doing pretty well. But then we realize that Jesus is like drawn to the people who were the most broken. He has a way of seeing past our subtle and not so subtle brokenness and sees us as we're intended to be. In fact, he had things that he deliberately said about that. I'll, I'll give you a quick example, though. Like, years ago, we were doing, I was in uh, my, my first house out of college, and it came equipped with its own basement full of junk. I mean, tons of junk, decades worth of junk. And they were like, you can just do whatever you want with the junk. I said, well, I don't want the junk. And they were like, well, get a dumpster, and we'll throw all the junk away or whatever. So I'm throwing out broken furniture, and there's all this just like just irredeemable kind of things. And my father-in-law was helping me uh, on one of my many, you know, hours down in the basement trying to do things. And he looks at this table, and he says, that's a good table right there. And I said, that table's disgusting. I mean, it was covered in oil and soot. And he goes, no, I'm telling you, that's a good table. And I said, I I." I tend to disagree. I don't know tables apparently as well as you do, but he, he was seeing something that I couldn't see. So he took the thing home and he, next time I saw it, he had sanded it down and cleaned it up. And all of a sudden this beautiful oak table was sort of coming to life and something that I was absolutely convinced was just junk. But he had the eye to see something beyond the brokenness. You, you get the, the metaphor, right? So Jesus has this way of like seeing beyond our brokenness. And for us to understand that the curse is broken, we get this gospel grid that helps us understand the way that Jesus sees the world. And I think this is vitally important for us if we're going to embrace this promise well. Uh, I'll give you another example real quick. How many of you were with us when we did the journey to the potter's house a couple of weeks, a few weeks ago? Was that kind of awesome? That was really, really beautiful. I, I really loved what, what Michael Ferris shared with us and the way he challenged us. But one of the things that was most meaningful to me was him just simply saying, you know, you all get excited about this thing that I made. I get excited when I see the lump of clay because I'm looking at the potential that's in there. I'm, I'm dreaming about what may be created from that. See, that, that's, that's seeing beyond that which is not yet made beautiful. And that's what Jesus does. In fact, Jesus had, you know, if, if you want to put sort of a pretty fine point on it, Jesus actually said this, a healthy person doesn't need a doctor. And I actually came here to help those who are sick. And maybe he would say, who understand that they're sick. So anyway, this, this theological grid, it just gives us a great understanding that every person is made in the image of God. And it's this imago Dei that, that keeps us from pride or from judgmentalism. Every person that you lock eyes with in this Advent season and beyond was made in the image of God and is a candidate for his restoration and redemption. So when we say that the curse is broken, there's a, there's a gospel imperative that is very much undergirding all of that. And I think it's important for us to understand. So that's point one. Point two looks like this. There is a scriptural context of the promise. We just looked at the gospel context. Let's look at the scriptural context of the promise which undergirds it. When we say the curse is broken, you know, child of the promise, promise number two, the curse is broken. And some of you even said like, hey, amen, that's good, that's good news. And we're going to latch onto that good news today. But what do we actually mean? What are we talking about? We are not talking about sort of a general run of bad luck, 
You know, the Eeyore person in your life is like, ugh, something's always wrong. It's going to go badly. It hasn't gone badly enough yet. Just wait. You know what I mean? Some of us get in that place, but that's not what it's talking about when the, it's talking about the curse. Uh, we're certainly not talking about a superstition regarding your favorite sports team. Uh, that feels very real, probably to the super fan at the time, but in the light of eternity, that's probably not what Scripture's talking about. We are talking about a specific set of universal consequences that are very much a part of the human condition today. So, and this is where it's a little tricky in a message like this because even when we make the statement that in Christ the curse is broken, we are still dealing with the aftermath of the curse and that which is not yet completed in Christ on a daily basis. So, I want you to look at Genesis chapter 3. We're going to spend a little bit of time there, but it'd be, it works enough time that it might be worth you just flipping over there so you can look at these words. I'll, I'll give you a couple illustrations. What are we talking about? Genesis 3 is titled in many of your Bibles as the fall. So again, having this context of creation and fall and uh, redemption and restoration is, is good for us. In Genesis chapter 3, uh, the creation account has happened um, Adam and Eve are in the garden. They're, they're walking with God. They're having this restored or this, this right relationship with him. Uh, the serpent has come in with his deception and enticed them to eat the fruit, which they have done. Uh, most people would probably say that their, their selection of fruit was probably not the ultimate downfall, but the attitude behind that was essentially saying, we will play the part of God. We will make the rules. And so now we've got this introduction of sin, which has led to an introduction of shame, which has had them hiding, so that when God comes to them in the garden, he says, hey, where are you? And somebody recently pointed out to me, I don't think God's you know, looking for information in those moments, but he is giving us constant opportunities to reorient ourselves positionally to him. And that's exactly what he's doing with Adam and Eve. Where are you? And he's going to show them sort of where they are. It's not good news. He begins to unpack in, in Genesis 3. We see in verse 14, he says to the serpent, you're cursed above all livestock. He says in verse 15, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And, and we get this pre, beautiful precursor to the fact that God is already working on the restoration plan from this cataclysmic fall that has impacted all of creation. To the woman, he says this in verse 16, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. And then this curious statement, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Some of you are very uncomfortable with this. This is not a prescriptive verse of saying, here's how it should be. It is a descriptive verse that is essentially explaining that from this point on with sin in the picture, family, relationships, spousal, children, the whole, is going to come with a level of pain that it did not have before. That's essentially what it's saying. There is going to be pain where there was not pain before. Family and relationships will be hard, to put it in our vernacular. Out of curiosity, can anybody say amen to that? 
I mean, so here's the thing. I mean, this is, this is where I would normally say, yeah, don't elbow the person next to you, da, da, da. But in all seriousness, if you are in a relationship where you are trying to do heart-on-heart, life-on-life kind of things, if you are married, if you're raising kids, if, I mean, all of these things, you have probably already found this is not easy. It is never going to be easy because the natural inclination of my heart is to push itself into the center of your universe. And I actually need divine help to undo some of those natural inclinations. And so in all, in all candor, I think what we're seeing here is family and relationships are, are going to be hard. They're going to be hard. And even if you're in Christ, even when you have a redeemed, a good Christ in the center of your home, you still find, surprise, surprise, relationships can be hard. And that is a part of what we see. It's very relevant Coming from Genesis chapter 3, to the man, he says this, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat from it, eat food from it, all of the days of your life. What's he saying? Work is going to be hard. There is an element, now listen, when you talk to your friends and you talk to people, you see this all over the place. People say, how's it going? How's it going? You know, and what do people say? Almost inevitably, I'm too busy. Ah, work's been, been killing me. Uh, da, da. You know what I mean? And so we have this as, as even Jesus-loving people, even pastors that will say, it works actually, it's pretty hard right now. Now, what I'm not doing is I'm not suggesting that family and marriage and stuff is, does not come with blessings. There's incredible blessings, but you have to work at it. I'm not suggesting that work is not a blessing. Work is an incredible blessing, but you have to work at it. And in this, in this side of the fall, family's hard, relationships are hard, work is hard, and then we get to the big one in verse 19. God says, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken... For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now imagine, imagine how that pronouncement landed on people who up to this point had only known the right standing sort of eternal relationship with Almighty God, and then hearing him say, guess what, now you're going to have to deal with mortality and it's going to be a universal issue. And it doesn't matter what culture you're in. It doesn't matter what country you grew up in. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. Death is going to become a reality. The great separator. I have never spoken to somebody in any kind of semblance of a decent relationship who have said, yeah, I felt very prepared for the inevitability of losing a spouse or something. I have talked with, with people who have been married for 50, 60, 70 years. And they're like, I can't believe that happened so fast. Because death is the great separator. Now we've got, now, now we're getting a picture of the curse. Relationships strained. Work hard. Life hard. Nothing guaranteed. But the promise is the curse is broken. So that's why if you're sitting here saying, this is a real downer of an Advent message, Pastor. Thank you for sharing this. 
So I can leave here convinced of mortality and thinking about death and all of that kind of stuff. That's the, the bad news. But see, you, you have to grap, grapple with the bad news. You have to. This is like you grapple with the bad news if you're going to appreciate the promise of what God's word has given us. Uh, what does the curse look like? We actually can get very specific here. What does the curse look like? The curse looks like the presence of sin in the absence of shalom. The presence of sin in the absence of shalom. We've used that word shalom in multiple messages. It's the Hebrew word for the perfect and harmonious interdependence among all parts of creation. We translate it as peace, but the English word is, is sort of a negative. It's an absence of trouble or hostility. The Hebrew word means much more than that. It means wholeness, fullness, harmonious, joyful, flourishing life. And that's what we feel the absence of so much in our world today. That's why we feel the tension when we look at the headlines and we look at our world and we say, man, what in the world is wrong with us? We're dealing with the presence of sin and the absence of shalom. Tim Keller is one of my favorite authors. He writes on this probably better than anybody, and he says this. The devastating loss of shalom through sin is described in Genesis 3. That's what we just looked at. We are told that as soon as we determine to serve ourselves instead of God, as soon as we abandoned living for and enjoying God as our highest good, the entire created world became broken. Human beings are so integral to the fabric of things that when human beings turned from God, the entire warp and woof of the world unraveled. I would not use that phrase, but Tim Keller did, and it's all it's just a weird one, warp and woof. But anyway, I get it. Disease. Genetic disorder, famine, natural disasters, aging, and death itself are as much the result of sin as are oppression, war, crime, and violence. And I have this part of the, the quote on the screen for you. We have lost God's shalom physically, spiritually, socially, psychologically, culturally. Things now fall apart. In Romans 8, Paul says that the entire world is in bondage to decay and subject to futility and will not be put right until we are put right. Now here's the good news. We're trying to, we're trying to give at least a little understanding scripturally of what do we mean when we talk about the curse and the breaking of the curse. Well, we start to see the breaking in Genesis chapter 12. This is where God sets aside Abram, says, I'm going to give you, send you to uh, a new place, you're going to go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. And then listen to the pronouncement that he says. This is Genesis 12, a pivotal part of scriptural if you're going to understand the Bible that you have. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. Do you see that the many, the many times that God is talking about blessing, 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 blessing? What is he doing? He's breaking the curse so that we can say in our day and age, the curse is broken because that is the man who would become the father of a nation. That is the nation who would become, the, that would bring us the, the savior, the savior who would come to the finished work that would allow us to say the curse is broken. And this is what it says, I'll bless those who bless you and all people on earth will be blessed through you. 
This is kind of the scriptural understanding of, of where the curse came from and how God is dealing with it. And it takes us all the way to Revelation chapter 5, which I don't have time to unpack in great detail today. But it's a fascinating look at the lamb and the scroll and all of the world looking and saying and, and weeping. The, the, John is weeping, he says, because I looked and there was no one who could open the scroll. And you can ask scholars, what is the scroll? And a lot of people don't even necessarily know or agree. What, what is it except it is the fulfillment or the culmination, the consummation of the will of God being carried out and nobody is able to open it. And they say, but there's a lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the next chapters are all like worship chapters of blessed is the lamb who is worthy to open the scroll. So when we say that the, the curse is broken, we're talking about something that Jesus is uniquely qualified to do. And we see all throughout Scripture incredible truths. I'm going to take us into our last point, which is the personal context for this promise. And we're going to do it sort of quickly as we get ready for communion. But let me just stay on this for a moment. When you read Scripture... And in this season, if you are able to say, promise number two that we talked about is, the curse is broken in my life. Now it becomes personal. And I, I sort of have this conviction that until Scripture really kind of finds a personal root in my heart or in yours, it's just a passing of information. So you could literally walk out of here and say that a curse is broken in my life, whatever, and it means nothing because it hasn't, it hasn't become a personal thing. But when it becomes personal, and then you read scriptures like Romans chapter eight, now therefore there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. You read that from a personal standpoint and say, that's me. I'm not under the curse of condemnation. And then you keep reading and it says, and nothing will separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And the whole list that's there, not angels, not demons, not sickness, not death, not any of those things. And you take that personally and you say, that's me. Because the curse is broken. And I've received that promise. You read passages like John chapter 1 and verse 12. To all who have called upon him, who have believed on his name, He's given the right to be called what? Do you know it? Children of God. I mean, that's like anti-curse language because you don't curse your children. Not if you're a good parent. God's a good parent. He speaks blessing. In fact, he invites us in. Incidentally, I think that's the only scripture that talks about your right. So all of our demanding of rights, you know, in our world today, my right, my right, my right. Scripture gives us one. He says, call on my name, believe in me, and you're given the right to be called a child of God. And I would suggest that that right is probably better than all of the other ones that I might want to clamor for. You get, do you get what I'm saying? It becomes personal. So now I have a personal context for the promise. The key question, I think as I'm wrestling with this in my own life, is not whether I know the promises that have been made. We're gonna talk about a handful of other ones in this series. It's actually not whether I know the promises that have been made, but rather do I trust the one who made them? I think that's where it starts to get very personal for me. 
And I'm going to tread very carefully on this last little illustration that I'm going to wrap up with because I want to be sensitive to the fact that it would be very easy to be glib or to be trite about saying, hey, curse is broken. We're good. Romans 8, 28, you're going through a hard time. Don't worry about it. God's working in all things for the good. You know, and people compound their pain sometimes by insensitivity. So I'm not trying to do that. I am trying to draw us to the attention, like, what if we embrace that statement that the curse is broken in my life? What does that actually mean in the times that are very hard and difficult or even very painful? What about the breaking down of relationships? Every one of us is dealing with that on one level or another. It's part of life. What about the breakdown of physical health, the loss of a loved one? Well, let me suggest this without being glib. If Scripture is true that the curse is broken, the reason that it is broken is that Christ has become the curse for us which is very different than simply standing on the outside and saying some magic words. Poof, your curse is broken. He actually comes down into the brokenness. That helps me very, very deeply when I'm wrestling with the things that I don't understand or the the hurts or the hardship that I'm wrestling to process. But to know that Christ didn't just fix it from out there, but he came down into it, that's important. So I, I try to process and then I say this, okay, When I am in Christ, when you are in Christ, when we are in Christ, we are infused with a righteousness that comes from the outside. And so therefore, we have to stay humble, right? I I just, we haven't achieved this on our own. So there's really not room for anything but humility. In that humility, it's so powerful that there is no offense that you can do to me that is beyond the scope of God's divine power and grace. Like, that is a true statement that sometimes I wrestle to implement. And you do too, because when you do something hard to somebody else or they do something bad to you, it hurts. So we react out of pain. But when we embrace the promise of the broken curse, we can say there's actually no offense that can be done to me that is beyond the scope of God's divine power and grace. What are we saying? Relationships actually can be restored. Relationships can actually be mended and put back together. I've not seen that in every circumstance, but I have seen evidence in many circumstances. Let me give you one other one. If you are in Christ, the greatest suffering that you will endure and you will endure suffering, will actually become the means of grace by which God refines you in the image of Christ. Somebody say, yeah, but we just, somebody from our church just died this last week, and you know, his, his suffering ultimately led to, to death, and, and where, where was God in all of that? The suffering will become the means of grace by which God refines you in the image of Christ and ultimately ushers you into the presence of Christ, which is the ultimate restoration of life. All of that is part of this promise. 
all of that becomes very personal. So we're going to wrap up personally by coming to the communion table and maybe doing some business with the Lord there. Can I pray for you? And then we'll get our hearts ready for that. So God, we are grappling with things in some ways that just feel a little lofty today. And I find myself preaching a message and trying to live out a message that I believe, but I'm still grappling with. And I suspect that we probably have a lot of people who would be in that place. And so I pray for special grace as we embrace a promise that you have said to us, the curse is broken. The curse is broken. I pray that you would help us to celebrate that even as we get ready to know and remember how it was broken as we remember your broken body and your shed blood for us.